Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. So IXL Learning is a multi-subject online program for kids, and it's used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. 14 million students use it. And if you have kids who are trying to get ahead or if they're struggling with certain subjects or studying for a test that's coming up, IXL is this personalized learning tool that you can use to help kids learn what they need to learn faster. And they have programs K through 12, so there's something for every level. And some of my nieces and nephews have been homeschooled, and so my family has used tools like this to supplement curriculum or to brush up or to sharpen skills. IXL Learning has won tons of awards, and so many students have benefited from it. So make an impact on your child's learning, get IXL now. And Ologies listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Ologies. So visit IXL.com slash Ologies to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Oh, hey, it's your grandfatherly neighbor who secretly waters your plants for you. Allie Ward, back with a fresh, hot, steamy yeasty episode of Ologies. We're all staying in, and without hitting up the store for fresh bread, a lot of y'all have been rising to the occasion and baking at home. So this past week, I hunted down an ologist who can help make your bread troubles toast. I think you're going to loaf it. But before that, thank you to all the patrons at patreon.com slash ologies for supporting the show. Right now, podcasters are lucky to work from their closets, but recording remotely is a giant pain in the hot buns, and it costs more to deal with in post, so thank you for supporting patrons. Happy birthday on April 17th to Stephen Ray Morris. Everyone wish him a happy one on Friday. Thank you to everyone wearing items from ologiesmerch.com, every person telling a friend or sending an episode around, rating, subscribing, all of those are life changers. And of course, reviewing on iTunes. And to honor and embarrass someone each week, I pick a fresh one. This week, thank you, AKP, who says that they bought an iPad just so they can finally give me a review. That was way too kind. Also, I hope that you use it for Pinteresting some bread recipes, because you're going to want them. Also, thank you to Lut Norse, who left a review four stars, saying, Crude language. This would be a fabulous podcast, but the crude language by the host is a stopper for kids hearing it. Clean it up. Thanks. Lut Norse, I hear you. And surprise, there are free bleeped episodes. Safe for kids. They've been up there for years. They're at alleyward.com on the Ologies Extra page. It's linked in the show notes. Have at it. I'm sorry. Heads up. There are some very enthusiastic curses in this episode. It's a hell of a ride. You have no idea what you're in for. Okay, first off, gastro-Egyptology. Is this a real word? It is now. So as of July 28th, 2019, more on that story in a bit. But gastro comes from the Greek for stomach, and Egypt is a duh. So eating Egypt, getting Egypt in our bellies. So this self-proclaimed amateur gastro-Egyptologist made global headlines last summer. He tweeted about his experiments resurrecting a 4,000-year-old Egyptian yeast captured from ancient pottery. Is he a professional baker? Nope. This wacky genius is a 
true polymath. His accomplishments are varied. They're all astounding. He studied particle physics. He's been a video game producer. He's widely known as the father of the Xbox. That's right. He made the Xbox. He was a Hollywood agent at CAA representing video game artists, and he's now a tech CEO. He also loves to bake, and I'm going to let him tell the tales of his international triumphs in the world of yeast starters. So we were introduced via Twitter, and we're only a few towns away, but we socially distanced. We spoke remotely as the LA rain drizzled, and I got hungrier every minute. Now, the first half of this episode will make you appreciate bread in ways you never have before, in ways Oprah never has before. It's chewy with history and culture and context and a meditative appreciation just for life, no matter how whack it feels. That is the why. And then the last half of the episode is the how, the very delicious DIY of bread, how to culture yeast from thin air, naming a starter, how long it takes to make bread, what kind of flour to use, what to do if you kill a starter, how to be a yeast daddy, and the analog chill of taking a grain and letting it fuel you with physicist, video game godfather, and amateur gastro-Egyptologist Seamus Blackley. And when I clicked over to your Twitter profile and saw that you were an amateur gastro-Egyptologist, I was like, that's an ology. We're doing this. So how did you come to call yourself that, by the way? How long have you been owning that as a title? Uh, well, that was actually suggested by somebody on Twitter who said, okay. you know, gastro-Egyptology. And so we <laughs> sort of very politely asked him, could we use that to describe this? <laughs> and and he said, as, as long as you make sure, as a disclaimer... To say uh, that it was suggested sarcastically. So, okay. So, yes, it was sarcastically suggested. One should never take it seriously. Uh, and there you have it. So, you know, I'm, I'm an amateur gastro-Egyptologist. And um, it may be that there, there actually are no professional gastro-Egyptologists yet. But, uh, you know, I'm hoping in the future that uh, a huge army of them. Well... I kind of disagree because you call yourself an amateur, but I feel like if you're the only person in the world who is doing it at a pretty high level, like, are you an amateur? Really? I, you know, I mean, I'm not getting paid for it. That's for sure. So, you know, really, if I could get like, you know, a grant or something, mm -hmm. I suppose that then I could remove that. But, you know, I mean, look, I have a day job. I'm the CEO of, a, of, of this, you know, very stealthy tech startup. And, and that's more than a full-time job. And so this is the thing I used to do on Sunday mornings that's grown like the, you know, like the monster out of some 1950s, like <laughs> science fiction movie into, you know, a city destroying monster. And, uh, you know, I still am not quite sure myself what what exactly the hell is going on. So, well, that was my first question for you in my notes. It just says your backstory. What the fuck? Like, okay, you're a physicist, but you're also a video game engineer. You're the father of the Xbox. You were an agent at CAA. Like what, what your life, how did you do all of these things? Where, and what were you always interested in growing up? One way to think of it is as, you know, a kind of a profound lack of a career. Oh, you. Or, 
you know, a profound lack of direction in one's life. Um, that would be the, the sort of stern uncle way to talk about it. But I think, you know, the other hand of that is just that I'm, I'm really interested in basically everything. And so mm-hmm. there's some aspect of like doing whatever is in front of you that looks cool. Or do you just, when you get into something, are you just so passionate about it? You just kind of go down a wormhole? Y- yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, well, you know, awesome. I think that the the universe is so magnificently interesting and beautiful and profound. And in even the smallest things, there's so much complexity and beauty. And it seems like a crime to ignore it or to walk by it. It mm-hmm. really does to me. And so... I have this kind of fear of missing out of like everything. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that really is a, a powerful thing for me, you know, just walking around and noticing things. There's just so much beauty. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. re- remarkable to me. Oh, you thought this episode was just about bread? No, buckle up, prepare for some real heartfelt shit. And do you think that, partly why you started baking was that something where you kind of were slowing down and working with your hands since you you work digitally a lot or in tech or when when did you kind of get into that that was kind of the idea right and that's uh, part of why it's so weird to think or it was so strange to find myself you know uh you know, at Harvard, um, you know, doing biological sampling of really ancient, like priceless artifacts when it was supposed to be the relaxing thing I was going to do to get away from (laughs) research on, you know, Sunday morning. Um, So uh, what does it mean? But I think that, that, you know, realistically, and I think it's probably true for everyone, that to really reset your mind to kind of clear your conceptual palette. You have to distract your brain with something else. I asked if he knew when he first started baking. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember. Um, My mother was this sort of um, perennially amateur kind of chef. Mm -hmm. And she loved cooking and sometimes it was even good. Um, and, but, you know, she, her heart was really in it. And I, um, I started to be interested for reasons I couldn't understand uh, in the baking of bread. And um, in college and then in graduate school, I would occasionally go through phases where I'd, you know, get it in my mind that I was going to bake some bread. And... It came out variously good and bad. Seamus says that he ended up working with someone on an optics job who inherited a wheat field, and the folks on their engineering team would bake sourdough from the family farm grains. And I thought, God, you know, in terms of nerdiness, that's pretty good. <laughs> and, and maybe I should learn how to do that. Um, and, you know, because it's like, it's, it's like, you know, <laughs> what your physics or math or engineering brain does 
with anything. You know, you look at it and you dissect it and you want to find its purest part and its purest form. And you want to find challenge in it and find ways to challenge yourself. Um, you know, I think. And mm -hmm. so a lot of engineers and scientists end up making sourdough because of, I think, a few things. First of all, it's really interesting technically. You know, you have this mm -hmm. kind of somewhat random biological sample. And it does an amazing thing. You know, it transforms powdered grass seed into the foundation of civilization. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that's incredible. Um, but it does it in a, in a really kind of wistful, uncontrollable kind of naughty way. You know, it, it's not predictable. You don't know what's in it. You don't know how long it's going to take based on, you know, the humidity in the air and the temperature and a million other things that maybe you can control and maybe you can't. The behavior of this stuff is different, but it turns out, and I think this is really lucky for like our species. It turns out that almost any screw up or, or, or half right way to bake natural bread like this, you know, is delicious and nourishing. So your village will survive no matter how bad you are at it. And it might have a lot to do with human beings like being, you know, being here because you can grow this grass, which grows easily. Okay, and you get the seeds off it and you can make this food and the grain lasts a long time. You can store the seeds and it lasts for a really long time. And then when you need it, you can kind of grind it up and make this stuff with it that feeds everybody. And, and people don't die like they, it turns out to have enough protein and, and, and enough amino acids in it and, 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 and enough micronutrients and starches and sugars and all these things that human beings need. It just t turns out to have that. It's kind of miraculous. And, you know, when you think about is there life on other planets and in the universe and all of that, um, you know, what, how lucky do you have to be to find something like that? And, and it's got all sorts of additional benefits, too. Like, I have come to firmly believe that the fact that you can make beer <laughs> at the same time as making bread is also hugely important in, in human civilization because all of the people who need to go do all this heavy labor, you know, mm -hmm. to farm and to harvest and to winnow and all of that, you can tell them, hey, if you go do all this work so the village survives, we'll also make some beer. <laughs> and so it's like the lubricant that <laughs> makes all the other hard work happen. So yeah. it's really lucky that you can collect out of the air that even if you just leave, you know, some of this grass seed around and mix it with water, it's going to start bubbling up. And if you if you kind of, you know, freeze those bubbles by putting it in an oven or getting it hot, you get this m satisfying, yummy stuff that stops your kids from dying. Um, <laughs> really super lucky. I'm really lucky. And so I got, I, I started to think about all of that. And I thought, gosh, you know, it, like a, a really good, interesting challenge would be to figure out if I was, you know, as smart as, you know, your average 12 year old in the 1400s and I could make, you know, bread out of just grass seed or what the deal would be. And so I, I started screwing around with that and collecting yeast. And it turns out that it was really delicious. He realized that maybe ancient foods weren't gross. Maybe we just lost the skill of cooking the ingredients right. And agrarian societies, just side note, emerged 
about 10,000 years ago, and being able to stay in one place and have more reliable food sources is cited as a huge advancement toward the current industrial age. And all because fermented, more aerated bread was fluffier, tastier, and more nutritious. So how do yeasts elevate it, if you will, like that? The microorganisms that cause bread to rise that make CO2 and also make the alcohols that give it its flavor. Um, you know, they're natural animals. They live on the grain. You know, it's not like, it's not like yeast exists because we started making bread. No, mm -hmm. I mean, the yeast has been there for a really long time and it, it eats the grain. And when we started to make gruel, out of this stuff, the theory goes, the gruel started to bubble if you left it out long enough. And if you mm -hmm. left it out long enough and you heated it, you would make bread. And if you left it out long enough covered, the yeast would start to run out of um, air. And yeast can respirate and feed both aerobically and anaerobically, meaning with or without oxygen. And when it respirates aerobically, it makes CO2, which is the farts that make bubbles in bread and make bread soft. Mm, smells so good. When it respirates or when it when it eats anaerobically, it poops out alcohol, which is oh. what gives beer. And so if you leave it covered, then you get a boozy kind of a thing. And that's pretty good. I mean, people definitely would have taken notice of that. So you mean I'm drunk? You know, this relationship between humans and fermentation starts. And you know, it's hard to know what those primitive people thought of it, but they certainly kept the tradition going. And by the time that cultures like the, you know, Egyptian, Sumerian cultures show up, um, they're already, from the start, uh, experts at brewing and baking. And did you already know a lot of this stuff earlier? Did you always like Egyptology? And how did you partner up with, like, Dr. Serena Love? She's the Egyptologist that helped you actually nab this yeast. Like, were you already in the Egyptology scene? Were you, like, in the group chats? Were you hanging out on the Reddit forums? Oh, God, no. All of this replaced, <laughs> like, useful knowledge that I used to have that I don't have okay. anymore. No, um, well, I've always been a fan of Egyptology. Um, mm -hmm. And like, I mean, like anyone, I mean, how can you not be? It's like dinosaurs. Yeah. You know, if you don't like it, then something's wrong and we need to take <laughs> you to see the nice man who's going to ask you questions about your emotions, right? <laughs> the thing that happened to me was that in, when I was in college, I had to take a distribution requirement. One of the options that was available was actually Egyptian hieroglyphics. Ooh. And yeah, it was cool. And the teacher was actually um, an Egyptologist at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which is where I ended up doing some sampling last summer. And the final exam for this class was actually going to the museum and translating stuff off of actual objects, which was so cool. Oh, my God. Well, and even cooler than that, and I think this is lost on a lot of people, um, you can read those words and you can you can know what's in the minds of our ancestors thousands of years ago so what kind of mysteries do you unfurl when you translate hieroglyphics i bet mysterious deep ones right Seamus explains <laughs> and the other thing that that i think people miss out on is that it's not some sort of weird formal thing like you see in movies you know it's a lot of like hey uh so 
You know, Sen Morset's sister is dating the, the overseer on the work crew, and we know her crew is getting 50% more than we are, and we demand that you change that. Like, it's it's stuff like that, or like, you know, so-and-so's wife is sleeping with, like, so-and-so, and so I made a wax crocodile in the hope that it would come to life <laughs> under his bed. You know, like, this is... And, and these stories are tremendous, and that you suddenly get to know these people and they were hilarious and their language is written down in these hieroglyphs and some of them are you know are pictures of things and so they made puns with them and they had a certain kind of humor <laughs> and they were so smart and so successful and you know their civilization lasted 5000 years i mean it lasted longer than it's been since it ended oh my god you know <laughs> They were uh, extraordinary, and I came to realize what an extraordinary um, civilization this was, and, and yet how how close to them we are, and how much we owe them. So Seamus says he started to realize what a debt we owe to the ancient Egyptians, not just for carbs, but for the way that they understood medicine and architecture, and how essentially the Greeks revered them and bit their style. And then the Romans copied the Greeks. So the Egyptians are like your smart friends whose paper you copied. They were the nerds as well as the hotties and the ones that you should not challenge to a fight. Ancient Egypt was called Kemet to the mm -hmm. Egyptians and Waset was the capital. And Waset is actually the name of the ceremonial mace that the pharaoh would brain his enemy with. <gasps> Okay, so that's the name of the capital. And oh, you'd go God. to you'd go to Wasset and the pyramids were there. <laughs> and and they were smooth and white because they were covered in in very precisely cut limestone that was actually taken off of them by the Arab invaders who are the, the modern Egyptians um, and used to build Cairo. And oh my God. And, and and so it was fantastically intimidating and the Pharaoh was the ruler of the known world. Uh, I feel like uh, Egypt's, uh, Egyptians were like the first Instagram influencers. Like everyone looked up to them. And now that's just you just being so extra, so extra in bread making. No, it is totally <laughs> true. They were, you know, that you can look at the, the, the temples at Karnak in places and the, you see the pharaohs. And it was total Instagram. They'd like have huge pictures of themselves and then descriptions of all the stuff that they had done. Um, and there's, there's this famous one actually of Ramses II, Ramses the Great, who is probably mm -hmm. the, the pharaoh from the Bible. Um, and he had, he had this big military expedition early in his reign and he got his ass kicked and handed to him, right? But if you look at it, if you look at the, 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 uh, inscriptions and pictures of this in Karnak, this huge temple complex, like his advertising for himself, what it shows is mm -hmm. a series of epic victories, each one just a little bit closer to home. So great. <laughs> so great. I love that being a petty bitch has just been like, it's in our DNA. It's who we are. So Seamus got into all this history and a hunger arose. Learning all of this, which was mm -hmm. really news to me because, you yeah. know, the programmer physicist guy was really powerful. And one day, a few years ago, I guess less than that, maybe two years ago, a friend of mine who I know from the video game industry, who's a famous beer brewer, sent me a sample of some brewing yeast that had that that was purportedly you know scraped from some ancient egyptian pots and various companies brewing companies had made you know ancient egyptian beer with this stuff but what if you tried baking with it wait stupid question can you bake with beer yeast 
Oh, yeah. It's all the same. It's all the okay. same stuff. Yeah, no, the beer and bread are really the right and left hand of the same thing. Okay. They, re- they really are. Um, like I said before, you know, just in one case, you know, in bread, you introduce a lot of air into the dough. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't, and you don't, and you don't take that long. You take maybe, you know, half a day or 18 hours if you're really crazy and trying to get really sour sourdough. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't give the, um, the yeast really a lot of time to, to respirate anaerobically. So that doesn't make a lot of alcohol, but it makes a lot of CO2, which is what you want to, to leaven the bread, right? Yeah. When you make beer, you, you seal it up and you get the yeast to make alcohol. Okay, and just a quick side note, if you missed the Zymology episode on fermentation and beer, yeasts are a fungus and they're single-celled, and humans have been using them in food and drinks for thousands of years, starting in the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East. So you can see them under a microscope under 400 times the power, but it wasn't until 1857 when microbiologist and Franchman and father of the rabies vaccine, Louis Pasteur, figured out that it was yeast and not just chemistry that made bread rise and beer bubble up. 1857! That's when they figured it out. Now, there's pretty much one common yeast used in baking and brewing with a ton of different strains, although there are a handful of other yeasts that do that work too. For thousands of years, bread was just made with whatever yeasts were naturally present, and these little critters had more time to break down the grains and then rise up the dough. There wasn't any Fleischmann's yeast in the Old Kingdom. Um, (laughs) You know, you didn't go to the supermarket and get your yeast out of the fridge. Yeah. You collected it out of the air, um, or, you know, it came in with your flour, and or most likely, you know, you were taking some of your old dough or some of the some of the, the the yeast froth that develops on the top of beer and using that. And so this friend of yours is like, yo, I gotta hook up yeah. on some beer. So I got this old yeast. And I bake with it because, mm-hmm. you know, it's right in line with everything that I love. Egyptology and all of this. And I think to myself, this is fantastic. Like now, in addition to knowing the, the minds of these people, maybe we could share a meal with them. Mm-hmm. Like, that would be tremendous, wow. you know? Yeah. You know, what would this be like? And so, you do some research into what the grains were a little bit, and I make this bread. And, you know, I had been posting photographs of my, you know, my medieval baking adventures of, like, you know, trying to collect yeast out of the air in different places and use different grains. And I had started sort of milling some some old grains, like milling rye, like the Central Europeans. Mm-hmm. And trying to make, you know, medieval peasant bread, basically. Uh-huh. And so I applied that technique to this Egyptian yeast and put pictures up. And, you know, I was used to, you know, getting a couple hundred likes or something, right? Mm-hmm. And, it was like, like, suddenly there were, like, millions of people watching this, right? <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is going on? And And it was really tense, too, because I would send pictures... Like as I was baking during the day on Sunday, because it was relaxing. And yeah. suddenly this was no longer relaxing. This was like super tense because now it's, oh shit, this has to come out. And, um, and so the, but, and, but part of it was that people started asking questions like, how do you know this is ancient yeast? Where'd you get this from? Like, how do you know you're, you're doing this the right way? How did they bake? Yeah. And I didn't have any answers. 
And worst of all, my wife said, yeah, well, you know, they have a point. Oh, come on, man. I found the most vocal critics, two of whom were uh, Dr. Serena Love uh, and Rich Bowman, who's a Mm -hmm. microbiologist at University of Iowa. And I said, all right, so you're right. So how would we fix it? How, Mm -hmm. how, How would you get it right? And that's where our little product was born. Well, he certainly leveled up from his sleepy Sunday bread sessions. And Seamus mentioned that there are still DNA and RNA analyses to do, and they're working on it, given that it's pretty much like a side hustle passion project. This is like gentlemanly science in the Victorian sense, right? (laughs) Where we may be all professional scientists on other projects, but this is a little self-funded project of our own. And so, mm-hmm. you know, getting DNA analysis of yeast is complex uh, and we've, we're doing it. And that's just really a disclaimer. What we, we decided to do was take advantage of a couple of different things that are true about baking and natural yeast and, and ancient Egypt. First is that yeast and a lot of the bacteria that make up natural leavening can hibernate. They can they can go to sleep. They can encapsulate themselves in various and sundry ways mm-hmm. uh, and survive almost anything. People have taken yeast strains to space, exposed them to vacuum in space, and brought them back to Earth and revived them. Yeast might be able to survive indefinitely long and dry it all the way out and then um, give it water again and it comes back. So this dormant state is called quiescence and it means essentially to rest or to snooze. I came across one microbiology paper called Sleeping Beauty, Quiescence in Saccharomyces cerevisiae. But how does it even chill that hard? And how long can it take a fungus nap? Nobody knows. May may just be immortal, to be honest. (gasps) And I'm not exaggerating. So that's important to know. The other thing is that um, the ancient Egyptians used ceramics kind of like plastic. There's a very technical term Egyptologists use, which is crapware. And crapware is okay. <laughs> uh, is the pottery that Egyptians made in huge quantities and would just toss away when it broke and just make more because they're constantly mm-hmm. making it. And you find piles of this stuff apparently on digs, you know, like the size of houses, of just broken pottery, of, of just a trash heap. You find little cups for drinking, and you find brewing and baking vessels, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, all of the brewing and baking vessels are candidates for us because this was all like terracotta. Terracotta, side note, is unglazed pottery. It's that ruddy, rough stuff. Uh, but it had what's called inclusions, mm-hmm. which means basically animal poo and sand and stuff. And what it meant was that um, these fired ceramics Uh, or porous, and liquids could soak into them. And so the the theory is, and I think it's true because we've done experiments on this and seen it, that the microbes that are in our beer or baking activity can soak into the ceramic matrix, into the little pores in the middle of the walls of these vessels, right? And then they can dry out. And then you could throw the vessel away or bury it or whatever, and they're protected. It's like a little time capsule inside the middle of the pottery. Okay. Mm -hmm. When people say, oh, you know, we scraped some yeast off of the wall of a bakery or off, you know, off a pot, Mm -hmm. you know, I think you're just scraping modern dirt off, Um, especially (laughs) if it's in a museum. You know, it's whatever dirt it was buried in and, you know, whatever was in the museum for hundreds of years. But inside, really, you can imagine the sort of porous microstructure of this pottery where the yeast had, had, had seeped in and the bacteria had gone to sleep. 
they might still be there. And so Rich Bowen's idea was, could we do a kind of microbial fracking on that? Could we use a fluid um, filled with nutrients and amino acids, all the stuff that these organisms like? Could we um, sort of flood a piece of ceramic with that? Let it sit for a little while so that things wake up and start to sort of like let go of the surfaces that they're attached to. Mm -hmm. And then vacuum them back up again and take them to the lab and see if we can revive them. Alive. It's alive. Okay, so this pottery is 4,000 years old, and it was recovered from below a temple in Giza near the base of the pyramids. And this plucky team of gastro-Egyptologists were allowed to suck up the yeast from these pieces at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and the Peabody Museum at Harvard, because their collection methods were non-invasive. So no scraping, no breaking it open. They actually do three levels of samplings. This is not for casual hobbyists. So a lot of thought is put into this, and it very, you know, specific type of fluid is used. And when we do this, it's in a very sterile, as, as much of a sterile environment as possible. Like I wear sterile garb and masks and gloves and I mean, stuff that's like normal today. Last summer, it was weird to yeah. see people dress like this. Now you see people like that on the street, but fine. 2020 spring fashion. Yeah. In any case, mm -hmm. that's how we end up sampling. And that was a protocol developed by Rich in answer to my question of, okay, okay, smart guy, <laughs> you want to you tell me I'm doing it wrong. How do we do it right? And uh, but that's only half the equation because the other half is like, how the hell do you get anybody to let you do this? Yeah. Um, and, you know, Dr. Love, I mean, she really took a bet on me not being uh, a crazy person, or whether on being the, the right kind of crazy person, I guess. <laughs> um, and she put her reputation on the line with uh, with a lot of, you know, really important people in the world of Egyptology that it was okay to talk to us and we wouldn't hurt anything and this would be interesting. And where, what kind of pot exactly were you able to get access to? A lot of pots. Ooh. And, you know, the, the pressure was really on for me because Serena had bet, you know, a lot of her reputation on this, as did Rich. And, and I would show up like, you know, uh, you know, I'm a particle physicist. I don't know anything about this. Um, to, you know, to try to make good on this and then to make sure that the result was treated respectfully and, but also get people excited about Egyptology. Um, but anyway, that, that's an aside. The, the, the goal was to find the kinds of vessels that would have been infected with the culture, mm -hmm. the beer and bread culture. Um, and where it would have dried out. So vessels that beer was brewed in. Um, vessels that bread is kneaded in or rose in or where the dough was mixed. Um, and we had a lot of guesses. We even, we sampled actually, uh, you know, uh, fossilized or preserved or dried out, um, actual ceremonial loaves of bread <gasps> that had been buried in the old kingdom. We tried a lot of different things. We have, you know, a lot of samples. Um, all of them were categorized, you know, by where they were taken, when it was from, what the vessel was, which sample it was. Um, Rich then freezes some of each one. So we have a, a record forever. So that's sitting at like basically, you know, minus 80 degrees centigrade in a freezer in Iowa. And then he would um, feed some of them and develop them into colonies and select out the yeast and the bacteria and the things that were obviously modern and get rid of those. And then there are DNA and RNA extractions and further analysis. So first come the lab coats, 
Then come the aprons. And this is the Sunday morning hobby that everyone is looking for. Right? Yeah. I mean, good Lord. Sounds super relaxing. Super relaxing. Casual. No stress. Really inexpensive. <laughs> it's really DIY. Exactly. Things totally. you have lying around. Yeah, like I was thinking of like, uh, you know, learning how to make kombucha or maybe traveling all over the world doing microbial sampling of ancient Egyptian artifacts. One of the two. Okay, so once you get a few of these sleepy little yeasties, what do you do? How do you make it a thriving, grinding, burping, farting fungus party? Okay, here we go. We have the passion. We have the history. We have the context. So how do you start a starter? How much yeast do you need to make a starter? Not very much, because what you do is you amplify it. You, you you need not more than a few cells. I mean, that's that's the trick. And those cells are everywhere. I, I always say, and I've actually considered doing this, that you could probably bake bread using the yeast in the air in your car tires. Because yeast is just everywhere. I mean, it's on everything. It no. is everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeast is just, it's everywhere. It's hard to not collect it. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, you know, one of the funny things about the pandemic has been, you know, apparently there's a shortage of baking yeast. And you see yes. all these. All yeah, these, people all, are saying that. Yeah. You see all these microbiologists responding on social media like, guys, there's no shortage of yeast. What the hell are you saying? <laughs> um, yeah. So what, what you really want to do, what you really need to do is you need to amplify it so that you have, um, you know, a, enough yeast, like enough, you know, hundreds of billions of yeast cells to make a loaf of bread. And you just do that by feeding it. Um, and it's actually pretty simple. And again, this goes back to like the luck that we have as a human race. And this is so easy. So you just feed it flour because you want it to eat flour. So you have this mm-hmm. jar of stuff and you keep feeding it flour and like pouring half off. And eventually everything that can't eat flour is going to die because it's starving. Right. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that can eat flour is going to reproduce and reproduce and reproduce, make huge, like amazing, like, you know, buffet orgy. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Until you have a lot of it in this jar and, and you're purifying it by doing this. And that's really what raising a starter culture is. It's may the odds be ever in your favor. And I think you should feel vaguely guilty about it when you have your sourdough starter, frankly. You went like full, full hog. What do they call that? You went ham on it and you use like hand churned, hand grained like amaranth and in old Egyptian grains to do this loaf, right? Yeah. Well, the, the, uh, the Egyptians used a very early wheat, the first cultivated wheat, we think, uh, called emmer, which is also pharaoh okay. for bread. And they used barley and einkorn also, but usually just for beer. Um, and those are also both very primitive grains. Like barley is used for like soup now. Pharaoh is like put into warm salads. Seamus makes a point that emmer or pharaoh and barley, these were like the burliest of grains. They built the people that built empires. But you may now recognize it from the menu of a boho chic outdoor wedding reception. <laughs> the Roman armies that conquered Europe were fed emmer, and now it's used for warm salads. So that's kind of cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that, you know, a huge, like, muscle-bound centurion would find that amazingly <laughs> amusing. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we got that stuff. But n- not only for accuracy, but also, you know, this these microbes have been asleep a very long time. Um, you know, if we actually mm-hmm. did get ancient microbes, then they lived and went to sleep before modern wheat had ever been bred. Um, they have mm-hmm. no knowledge of it. They want to eat emmer. And what we found just anecdotally is that uh, 
you know, the, this culture that we have, the, the one that I use actively because, we, you know, we have hundreds of samples, but I just use one actively because I sort of stole it around the edge um, mm-hmm. to try out. Uh, it doesn't like modern wheat. I took one sample home and I sent the rest to Rich. And this one sample I started to kind of raise mm-hmm. like a regular sourdough starter, but in a sterile environment, right? Like I sterilize all the food and water that it gets. And I use like UV lights and flames and stuff to make sure that it doesn't contaminate with anything. So it's really just that sample. Mm-hmm. Uh, and recently, actually, I sent some of it back to Rich and he confirmed mm-hmm. that I haven't uh, contaminated it yet, which is pretty good. Um, and it lets me have a lot of cool equipment in my kitchen too, which is great. But I, when I, yeah. <laughs> when I split off some of this stuff and try to feed it like modern wheat or hard red wheat or any of these varietals that we've developed over the past couple thousand years, uh, it just doesn't grow very well. Yeah. No, thank you. And when I feed it Emmer, it's like crazy. It just, it loves it. It's what, you know, it's, 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 it's food. You know, it's it's comfort food. That's a good sign. That's part of what gives me confidence that we've that we've actually um, captured some ancient organisms. Seamus says that sourdough is three ingredients: flour, water, and salt, and then of course all the little yeasties in the air. Now the rest, he says, is just technique. Okay, think of it this way: so you can have three balls sitting on a counter. They don't do much, but if you learn to juggle, dang, those three things just became a party. So it's not the objects. It's just what you do with them. <laughs> there have been teams who have made ancient bread, quote unquote, and ancient beer, quote unquote. And they say, oh, it's not very good. And ancient people must have had different tastes than it. Oh, you know, bull, fuck you. This bullshit. You know, <laughs> bullshit. No, it's just that you're bad at it. It's that you're a scientist and you may be a very talented scientist, but you're not a baker. And, yeah. and, and if you ha- had a master baker in mm-hmm. um, and that master baker took the time to learn how to do this that person could probably make really excellent bread using these ingredients and these techniques, just like the people uh, millennia ago did. Just like in the Navy, where the food is the most important part of the morale of the sailor, you know, the food is the most important part of the morale of these work crews. And all these guys were put up Mm -hmm. in these temporary towns that were at the base of the pyramids or the base of the temples they were building. And we find the bakeries there and the, the breweries there and the kitchens and the flop houses where they all slept. And, you know, they were fed well. I mean, a guy who works out all day moving multi-ton blocks of granite and, you know, and, and moving them into position within like the width of a piece of paper next to one another, which is how the stones are set in the pyramid, right? Those guys had high caloric intake. Oh. <laughs> they needed to be fed really well. And so (laughs) I think the job of figuring this out is figuring out how do you make bread that would have satisfied those guys. You know, a guy who could like trivially snap your neck after moving around four ton blocks of granite all day. When someone has been hauling tons of huge bricks for lunch, you do not hand them another brick. You don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so you, you baked it. It came out of the oven. How was it? It was really good. I mean, it was, and, and yeah. but, you know, but it, again, like I knew it was going to be really good because I could tell that it was going well. I could tell that the starter was, was doing well, you know, because I had done it all before. It wasn't like a big mysterious reveal, like sort of everybody wants to tell a story. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah. It was a little sweeter. You said on Twitter it was a little sweeter. Yeah. Well, you know, all sourdough starters taste different if you, if you collect them different places. You know, people say, oh, it's the water and all these things. No, it's just, it's just like, it's just the microbe content, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
and the the different species of microbes produce a uh, different flavor um, and the the flour that you use produces a different flavor it's not it's not you know mysterious craziness um, and you know I could this culture when I was amplifying it when I was feeding it um, the sterilized emmer flour um, it smelled really different from my other starters really really different it's probably what excited me about it and uh, when we tried the bread the bread was had a, had a different delicate sweet character yeah it was sweeter and you know it was it was uh, sour in a more delicate way and you know the 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 main thing was just that and I mean the miraculous thing was that it made bread I mean it made a really nice loaf of bread and it was this starter yeah. made by sampling a pot and you have to understand that we did it in sterile conditions with sterile fluids and then it was you know always moved under UV light in sterile conditions and fed sterilized food. so there's nothing in it that didn't come from the inside of that pot at all and it made bread yeah you know that's that's ah. amazing to me and and, and, <laughs> and watching it and doing it yourself and, and taking the care and ensuring that it's all sterile and then seeing that happen is extraordinary so yeah I mean the flavor was different and that was really cool and I was glad for it because it made me feel like maybe we had done something right. The overarching thing for me is a little bit more subtle and maybe after listening to me talk about all this, this is going to make sense. But for me, the emotional thing wasn't eating the bread. For me, the emotional thing was that, you know, 4,500 years ago, there was someone who was making this bread and she had her starter. And it was her whole life. And she was making all these loaves of bread for all these workmen on the Giza Plateau. And it was her job and her life. And it was her work. Mm -hmm. And I got a little bit of, of her starter. And I got to be there with her baking. Uh, and I was with her. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, was the the most important That's and most mind-blowing thing. That you have a connection with this person. Yeah, a real connection, not bullshit. Too, you'll never, you'll never meet. But yeah, yeah. Seamus made the point that the Egyptian culture and religion was based on the idea of eternal life and coming back from periods of dormancy, of forced inactivity. So, if you're listening to this in your Tuesday sweatpants, that might strike a chord. The symbolism, the the idea of of resurrecting that and and sharing that activity. And this basic, most important activity of, of making food like that is really special. And I think at the end of the day, that might be why people are so interested in this, because otherwise it's inexplicable. I mean, yeah. you know, watching yeast cultures grow is, is not possibly the most thrilling thing. Well, I mean, seeing something fart is fun. Sure. Okay. Now, I, now I hadn't thought about that. That's true. Starters too, like sourdough starters are really personal to people. Like they carry them around in jars. They... They're named. And, you know, I think right now with this pandemic, we're seeing a ton of people start to bake and a ton of people start to make their own sourdough, which I'm sure you've noticed. Number one, did you name the sourdough starter? And what makes something a sourdough starter versus another starter? Very stupid question, but you're smart, so I'm asking it. <laughs> no, it's okay. So, that, so again, like the, you just have to keep in mind our place in history that... Um, being able to buy purified yeast for baking that's designed, literally genetically designed for baking is a really new thing. 
Um, mm-hmm. It's really only the past hundred years or so. Uh, prior to that, all bread was made with natural yeast, um, which we would call sourdough. So you really don't think about it like, you know, a sourdough starter is really just a sample of microbial culture. Um, and that culture can eat flour and make gas and leaven your bread. That's it. So mm-hmm. um, sourdough really is a modern concept. And no, a lot of the reason we call it sourdough is because there's a specific style of baking with those organisms where you have a much longer fermentation at a cooler temperature that brings out more of the lactic acid, which is what the bacteria poop out and causes the bread to be more sour. Mm, and okay. that is done both because people prefer that flavor, but also because it makes the bread last longer because that lactic acid is a preservative. Oh. So if you're going to be, you know, selling food to miners, um, as, as they did in San Francisco, then having more lactic acid helps the bread to last longer and not go moldy. And that lactic acid tang comes from a lactobacillus bacteria. Full name. You ready for this? Lactobacillus San Franciscensis. God, that's a lot of S's. Because of San Francisco's sourdough history. Now, I was born there and I grew up in the Bay Area. I never realized literally until this episode just how hyper-local sourdough culture, if you will, was. Clam chowder served in a bread bowl. It's a way of life. And if you don't eat the bread bowl, you're actually not allowed back into the city, which is harsh, but it's fair. Also, what about gluten? Okay, 1% of folks have celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disorder that damages the little fingery absorption villi in the intestines. And gluten can trigger all sorts of terrible symptoms. But many more of us may have non-celiac gluten sensitivities or can't break down totally different parts of wheat, like fructans. So sourdough starter and long fermentation can help break down some of that gluten, yes, but also the hard-to-digest fructans and polysaccharides, which may be why folks have an easier time eating European-made breads, because they straight up might have way better yeast starters that break that stuff down. Research is ongoing. But yes, there is gluten in sourdough, less than other types of unfermented doughs. But if you find that sourdough doesn't bug your butt like other breads, gluten may or may not even be the real issue. It could be other stuff in wheat that just needed to be properly broken down before you ate it. The fact of the matter is that there's a lot of gluten in bread because it's what makes the balloons that the gas fills that causes it to rise. So, mm-hmm. you know, saying there's less or more gluten is kind of funny. As a baker, you want more gluten because that's how your bread rises. And if you don't have mm-hmm. gluten, then you have to have something else that can make little balloons inside the dough to hold the gas, which is ultimately what makes it makes it bread. Bread is like a it's like it's like it's really like froth farming, right? You you make a foam, <laughs> right? You it rises and it's a foam and then you freeze that foam in the oven and then you mm-hmm. eat it. Really kind yeah. of is what the deal is with that. Um and no and, and so you asked also if I named the the culture and no, I, yeah. I didn't name the Egyptian culture because it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to that baker. And oh. uh and that's a really important thing to keep in mind. You know, we looted so much stuff out of Egypt in the West and also worldwide. These things belong to the ancient Egyptians. They made them and they belong to them. And this 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 culture is no different. It belongs to that baker. So my intention is once we've done our work to return that to Egypt and to make uh, a strong point about the ownership of that. Um, So that's why I didn't name it. Seamus thinks people have probably named their starters for centuries. And there's one page on Reddit of just folks sharing their starter names. 
such as, I plucked a few for you, Bradley Cooper, Clint Eastwood, Yeast McYeastface, Vincent Van Doe, and Doey Seychanel. The name of the subreddit? Reddit. Nice. Now, this tradition in the past may have come from a family necessity rather than a hobby, but... You know, in a time of sheltering, of getting out to the store less, being able to make your own fresh food at home feels kind of more important these days. It's like the difference between somebody naming their yacht and somebody naming their fishing boat. Yeah. You know, one is a lot more serious. Do you think it's, uh, do you think that people making their own bread is, is somehow like an, an attempt to feel more grounded to those times? I think it's the most human thing you can do. I, I think yeah. that the, the story of bread and the story of the human race are, are inextricably linked. And, and I, I, I should I should point out here that that's kind of biased. You know, um, in Asia, it's really the story of rice and rice mm-hmm. cultivation. But it's that same deep connection. Maybe in a, a really deep way, in a genetic sense, the idea of bread and the comfort of bread and the baking of bread being the most comforting thing, the most grounding, homey thing we can do. You know, we evolved with that. It's in us that I think it may be that we have it backwards. It may be that it's inescapable in a crisis that people will start to bake. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you inspire other people to bake, then it's your fault if they're walking around with named jars. Yeah, no, that's been that's been pointed out to me. I've had there are people on social media in a good who, way who I thought were joking, but are actually angry with me that there's no, no. flour. Like I like literally, I was like, oh yeah, ha ha ha, and like no, fuck you. It's like, whoa, okay. Dude, I just don't think I'm actually responsible, but okay. No. Well, I do have a ton of questions from, from listeners. Can I just super lightning round, like, throw a couple at you? Yeah, for sure. I'm sorry I talked so cool? long. Go. I love it. Are you kidding? This is my favorite. After the break, how to bake bread and all of your questions. But first, every episode we donate to a cause of the ologist choosing. You know that. And with no hesitation, Seamus asked that his go to the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. The Boys and Girls Clubs provide a safe haven for more than 4 million youth, giving them an opportunity to discover their great futures. They have tutoring and mentorship and after school programs, and a donation went to them in Seamus's name. That donation was made possible by some sponsors of the show who you may hear about now. Ologies with Allie Ward is sponsored by Squarespace, and Squarespace has been part of my daily life for the last seven and a half years. Ologies might not exist without Squarespace. I had to make a website for this, and I was so intimidated. It took me over a year, and then one night I was like, you know what? I've heard about Squarespace. I'm going to try it, and now look at us. If you don't think you need a website, guess what? You probably do, especially if you're an academic. Have some place where all your papers are. People can contact you. Anyway, they have so many tools for entrepreneurs. They have Fluid Engine, which is this kind of next generation website design system. It's from Squarespace. It's drag and drop technology. You can use it on desktop or mobile. They also have an asset library so you can manage all of your files from this central hub and then you can use them across the whole platform. They have professional website templates. They have designs for every category, every use case, no matter what you need a website for. Get a website, start your business. 
look, it worked for me. Ding. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You could do it. You could do it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know time is the most valuable thing that you have. Boy, let me tell you, I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was better help. Because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. It's about time. Okay, here's how I like my clothes. I like them classic. I like them well-made. I like them comfortable. And I like them ethical, which is why I flipped when I first heard about Quince. So Quince partners directly with these top factories. So they cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to, obviously, you. They have these 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters that start at 50 bucks. They have organic cotton sweaters. They have washable silk tops. They even have 14 karat jewelry in case you are looking for a present maybe for yourself. So Quince items are priced like 50 to 80% less than similar brands. But Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And I like that their styles are well-made, well-cut, but also classic. I did not own a cashmere sweater before Quince. That was the kind of thing that I would splurge for for other people, but not myself. But I was like, you know what, Quince? I think I shall. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash ologies. You look amazing. How you doing on that D, that vitamin D? Could be better. I feel ya. Some of us are coming out of a winter. I don't know how much outside time you get. I don't know how your vitamin D is dietarily, but I know a lot of people, including myself, especially women over 18, 97% of us not getting enough vitamin D from our diet. Ritual's like, how about I help you? They're a clinically backed multivitamin. So skeptics, here's a multivitamin that's like, yeah, we use science to formulate this. I think you're gonna like it. Ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're gluten and major allergen free. I also like that Ritual is a female founded B Corp. So they're doing good for the health of people and the planet. Ritual multivitamins are also gentle on an empty stomach. I like that when I open mine, they have kind of a minty essence. I've got Ritual vitamins in my belly right now, to be honest. I take them every day. They have kind of a lava lamp look with oil and beads inside. I also have their melatonin caps at night when I need to go bye-bye Z's. So no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. And get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash ologies. So start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. So that's ritual.com slash ologies for 20% off. Okay, how to culture a starter and bake some bread 
and your questions. The first question was from patron and a mutual beloved friend, Casey Handmar. Seamus worked with his kick-ass brilliant wife, Dr. Christine Corbett, and Casey is also a genius and an accomplished baker, and I had no idea these two were buds, but Seamus and I off-air spent a while just chatting about how wonderful and curious and smart they are. Anyway... Casey Hanmer, can yeast synthesize vitamins? What's up with that? Uh, I think yeast can actually be made to synthesize almost anything. Um, I've looked at some papers recently, uh, Casey, and I will text them to you, um, <laughs> uh, where people actually have yeast making all sorts of molecules, and there's actually a naturally occurring yeast that makes oil. Uh, it makes actually make olefins and even wax. So it's an incredibly versatile life form. Dang. Okay, side note, I did some digging of my own, and for some light bedtime reading, may I suggest the Journal of Microbial Cell Factories March 2019 paper titled Increasing Jojoba-like Wax Ester Production in Saccharomyces cerevisiae by Enhancing Very Long-Chain Monosaturated Fatty Acid Synthesis. It's a ripper. Um, Helen Pang wants to know, how does yeast activity correlate to temperature? Like, how, how fast does sourdough rise at 40 degrees versus 60 degrees versus 80 degrees? Uh, it's that, okay. So that's a complicated question. Um, okay. uh, and I will unnecessarily complicate it further. So yeast, Perfect. like all microbes, uh, operates at a higher rate, uh, at a higher temperature, right up until you start to like, you know, shake it apart with heat and it dies. Proofing your bread at a higher temperature is going to make it proof faster. It's going to change the, the way that the, the water moves around in your dough, and it's going to change some other things about it, too. So you got to be careful not to go really hot all the time. Um, but the flavor profile of the bread also gets changed, specifically with sourdough, because you have a mix of microorganisms, and all of those microorganisms are more or less happy at different temperatures. Like bacteria are much happier at lower temperatures. And I mentioned before when we were talking about San Francisco sourdough, that you can make bread more sour by fermenting at a lower temperature for a longer period of time. And that's because the, the bacteria are happier there. Um, on the other side, in Egypt, uh, on the Giza Plateau, it's pretty hot during the day. And so one of the things I learned about these yeast samples that we have from there is that they're really happy working at 95 or 98 degrees. Oh, I like it hot. Um, and in fact, you can get a fairly sour bread at 90 degrees, which I don't find to be the case with other sourdough starters that I have. And again, a sourdough starter is just water, flour, and whatever little single-celled friends and lactobacillus bacteria harmoniously chomp and break it down. Baker's yeasts or quick yeasts that you buy in a package work faster, but they may have fewer nutritional and digestive benefits than fermenting your dough and raising a beautiful burping sourdough baby that you name like Breddy White or Scoop Doggy Dog. You gotta understand that you're the gift that keeps on giving. Also, Elliot Warren, great question, said, I heard of someone making bread using their vaginal yeast, and I thought that was so cool. Maybe not recommended, but super cool, Elliot says. And yes, Elliot, I looked it up for all of us. That is one way to get yeast. And Zoe Stavry, a British blogger, wrote all about it. I followed some links of hers, and it led me to getting Rickrolled, but I'm never one to give up. I'm never going to let you down. So I kept searching, and her blog post, I finally found it. It said the end product of this experiment was pretty tasty, but the yeast was likely just the stuff that was in the air and in the flour. There are better, maybe less personally invasive ways to procure fresh wild yeast. And patrons, including Heather Munro, Tover Hennis, and his lovely wife, 
Mari Stridham, Veronica, Brandon Lapine, and Carly Caramba wanted to know about proper yeast hunting in the wild. Danielle Garrett wants to know, first time question asker, how does one know what kind of wild yeast is good for what? Like, is the yeast found in certain areas of the wild? And Sam Gordon wants to know, do yeast from different locations contribute to the bed break, the bread bake time or rise? Like, if you were going to, let's say, go out, you get a wild hair to get a wild yeast. What <laughs> is a good strategy? All right, well, a few things. So, so yeah, di- different yeasts you collect in different places absolutely taste different and they act different. A lot of questions on social media right now, including from, from close friends of mine, are, you know, oh, my God, how long is this going to take? You know, how long should it rise? How long, you know, is is my starter going to take to, you know, get over the rubber band that I put around my jar? And the answer is, look, based on how much water versus flour you have, what microbes you have, what temperature it is, it, everything changes. And that's part of the, the great thing about baking with sourdough is that it's not like a rules-based thing. It's the ultimate escape from, you know, programming or actuarial work. You don't know. It's 100% feel and you just have to watch and smell and listen and learn and practice a lot. Um, and there are a lot, you know, there are a lot of Instagrammers who have like, you know, this is my sourdough starter. And I got to be honest with you, everyone I know who's a baker knows that they're full of shit. Like they're putting <laughs> commercial yeast in there and showing it pop up. It's totally clear. Gotcha. Also, there are a lot of bakers out there on Instagram and on Twitter who say, oh, here's my 100% whole wheat. And you're like, that is not 100% whole wheat. <laughs> like it has none of the signs of being whole wheat and you're full of shit. Um, but we try to be nice. Um, but no, it's, you get a different flavor everywhere. And look, there's yeast in the flour that you get because the yeast is living on the grain in the wild on the farm. So you can actually make a good starter in your kitchen. You don't have to, you know, sterilize your flour and then go out in nature and collect it. I do that because I want to get different flavors and characteristics from yeast that we get in different places. But you don't have to if you just want to experiment with a starter. And you don't have to use whole grain. You can use regular white bread flour and you're going to have a much easier time. And I'd encourage you to do that. But, you know, if you are a freak like me and you go out in the field, you'll get all sorts of different organisms from different places and they'll give you really different flavors in your breads. And it's like super fun and interesting. And it's also, you know, it's communing with our ancestors who had no choice. Right. You can really respect them by trying to see if you can bake like they did, trying to see if you could feed your family um, with some grass seed and some water and, and some salt if you're lucky. Um, and that's really, you know, that's a, that's a cool thing. And again, you know, in, in this crisis that we have now, I think that, you know, we all are drawn are drawn back toward that. And I and, and, and I think it is important to remember that people endured much bigger challenges than the one we have right now with much less and did mm-hmm. great. So if you're sad about staying in or annoyed that you're missing Coachella, I get it. But remember, we are saving a lot of pain, including our own, by just sheltering a place. You used to have to know CPR or how to work a fire hose in order to save lives. But isn't it cool? You can do the same thing just by watching Netflix and eating frozen pizza or baking bread. But how do you do it? So many of you patrons wanted to know, what are the tips for baking? Where do we start? Sheila Littlepage, Michael Aguirre, Ira Gray, Guillermo Riano, Annie Colonico, Kim, Kelly Saman, Catherine Gilbert, Katie Coast, Kaylee Roan, first-time question askers, Rachel Davis and Heather Moore. All wanted to know, how do we start? Kelly said, any tips on homemade bread one could make at home with access to flour, 
no yeast, and a housemate who will absolutely throw away anything bubbling in a jar no matter how much promise it holds? Catherine Gilbert wanted to know, why the F can't I cook bread? Fails every time. We understand. That's why we're here. If you were going to start, if you're like, this is it, I want to I want to work with my hands, I want to get my mind off of things, I want to bake bread, where should people start? Well, there, there, there are a lot of resources. The, um, if you look on my Twitter page, it just... Seamus Blackley on Twitter, one word. Mm-hmm. Um, I am continuously putting up there uh, a big thread that has a thread on yeast collection um, with some, like, you know, jokes of various levels of funny in it. But it has pictures <laughs> and shows you exactly what it should look like. And it takes about a week. Okay. Uh, and then there's a tutorial and then taking that and making your first loaf of bread with it. Um, and a lot of people have had success doing it. And like I said, there are many resources for this. You can look all over the place and a lot of really great, you know, video pictorial, um, examples of how to do this. You should look for it. Um, it's, it's really not that hard once you get your mind around it. It's like training a dog. Um, and dog trainers always tell you that you're not training the dog, you're training yourself, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing. It's training yourself to pay attention to what you're doing and not thinking that it's like an app and you tell it bread now, bread, and it does it. That's not how it works. Yeah. Okay. You need to get out of Mm -hmm. yourself, get out of your fucking head and (laughs) get into the dough a little bit. And the reward you're going to get is, 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 is many fold. Okay. I searched his Twitter and I found this massive thread from June 2nd, 2019. And I'm going to read it to you very quickly in an overview. I'm also going to link this in the show notes. Okay. So Seamus wrote, first, you need to have a very active technical term, bang in, yeast culture ready. We will need 150 grams of culture for this loaf. So put 80 to 90 grams of flour in a bowl, pour 20 grams of your main culture in and mix with enough pure water to get the consistency shown here. Also, side note for me, go for pure water or filtered water or boil your water and let it cool. That way it doesn't have a bunch of chlorine that kills your yeast. Just saying. Okay. Seamus says, now wait. While you wait, he says, take a moment to get your shit together. You're going to need 300 plus grams of filtered water that you let sit for 30 plus minutes, pure sea or mined salt, really good extra virgin olive oil, and the best flour you can find. Other things you need to have ready, he says. An oven that can really get to 500 degrees Fahrenheit or 260 centigrade a good kitchen scale, a whisk, a big main bowl, a medium bowl, a baking sheet, some ice cubes, plastic wrap, or waxed cloth, and the ability to stay sane while nothing seems to happen, he says. He shows a picture of what your culture will look like when it's just about ready to go. There's a bubbly surface, looks like jello. And he says, we're ready to begin. Using your scale and being exact as you can, add 250 grams water, 25 grams of oil, and 150 grams culture to your bowl. The culture should float, he says. Now add 100 grams of the flour. Now whisk everything together until it's smooth. We want a lot of air in the mix for the yeast to respirate. Remember, these little dudes gotta breathe. Next, he says, add the remaining 400 grams of flour to make a total of 500. Mix it around. There are pictures of the consistency. He says, if it's too dry, add a little water and knead it. Too wet, use some flour. Should be just on the edge of sticky, but not actually coming off of anything. Now cover it and wait for half an hour. What's happening, he says, is that water is moving around and filling all the flour, dragging the yeast along with it. He says, next, we either A, die of boredom, or prepare the bowl for the next step. He shows some kneading tips, folding some salt into the dough. He says, to recap, mix all the stuff together. Wait, like an abandoned dog. Knead in the salt. Wait, like an unwanted lover. Do the foldy thing. Wait, foldy. Wait some more. Foldy, nearly perish from ennui. 
He goes on to detail how to continue to let it rise, a cute pretty slice in it, tossing it in a 500-degree oven for 10 minutes, then putting in some ice cubes, lowering the heat, and letting it continue to cook and become bread. Anyway, that is an overview. If you go to aliward.com slash ologies slash gastroegyptology, I will link this particular Twitter thread. There's so many photos, so many videos, and just follow Seamus Blackley while you're there for all of your bread inspiration needs. Rachel Davis has a first time, first time question asker. She says, what's the best type of pan to bake bread in? Glass, metal, ceramic? Does it matter with bread? Uh, apparently not. You don't almost anything you want. To, uh, um, you know, Rachel, it's a good question and hey, um, but, you know, people have baked bread um, in li- literally everything. You know, hobos uh, make bread uh, on railroad tracks, um, as, as Casey knows. Uh, the mm-hmm. Australians have damper bread, um, which is made on a hot plate. Um, the Egyptians baked uh, with no ovens in pots that they buried in, in a hole with embers in them. You can bake Probably in anything. If you're starting out as a baker and you're doing your oven, the easiest thing to do uh, is to bake inside uh, a Dutch oven, inside your oven, uh, or, or any kind of like, you know, stoneware or metal pot. If you're an inexperienced baker, it helps you to get really nice looking loaves because it keeps all the moisture around the bread. And moisture inside the oven, believe it or not, is it really helps the bread to stay elastic as it bakes and as it, it expands in the oven. Uh, and you've probably seen these videos of like bread baking in the oven. That's so amazing. This is the joy for me. I love bread. If you have a container and a container inside your oven, it really helps with that. So you can look up Dutch oven. Dutch oven bread baking is a really great way to start. If you're like a Dutch oven, are we talking about farting again? No, ma'am, we're not. So a Dutch oven is like a cast iron pot with a lid. And the benefit to starting off baking your bread in a sealed pot is that it traps the steam from the dough and it gives your sourdough a good rise and a shiny crust. So if you have an oven safe pot with a lid, look into baking times with that action. Oh, and speaking of upper crust, Riley Klingingsmith wants to know, why do people make slits at the top of loaves before baking them? Is it decorative or functional? When did it start? How long have people been doing it as art, too? I know I see some like beautiful spiral slits. What's going on with that? It's like all good engineering. Uh, it's both decorative and also functional. Um, okay. So when, when you put bread in the oven, um, as I said before, bread is like a foam. You know, you're really like, you know, you're like froth farming. Uh, mm-hmm. And all the microbes in the bread, whether it's commercial yeast or wild yeast or anything, um, have uh, farted out CO2 into the dough. And the gluten in the dough, or if you're baking gluten-free, you know, your xanthan gum or whatever you're using to give it elasticity, what you're really doing is making a ton of little balloons inside the dough. And they're filling with the gas that the microbes are, are pooping out or farting out. And this mm-hmm. causes the bread to rise. Um, and it's kind of cool because it rises everywhere at the same time at the same rate. This, by the way, is exactly analogous to the way that the universe expanded. But I don't want to digress. Now, um, (laughs) when you bake, what you're really doing is you're trying to freeze that um, into into position so that you have like a solid object now because the dough is obviously like all squishy when it's when it's rising and when you put it in the oven it comes out and it's solid. But in the oven, when the when that CO2 heats up, it expands. Okay, everybody uh, in high school should have learned the ideal gas law, PV equals NRT. And what it basically Mm -hmm. says is that all things being equal, um, if you heat up a gas, it expands. And that's what happens to the little pockets of of CO2 
of, of yeast farts inside your dough, they all expand. And so the, the loaf expands and pops up inside the oven. <laughs> and what will happen if you don't have places that you've slashed on the surface of the bread for that expansion to take place is that your your loaf is going to rip open. And, and that's cool. That's cool and kind of free jazz, you know, and it's like, you know, it's going to be weird. <laughs> But if you want to control that and have it look, you know, sort of professional and adult and all that, um, people have developed, you know, uh, you know, really sophisticated ways to introduce faults, basically fault lines on the surface of the bread so that it splits open in a predictable way. Ah. Um, and so that's what people are really doing. And, and if you if you get a lot of practice with it, then you can control how it opens up and make, you know, really beautiful designs. But, at you know, at its most fundamental level, if you don't want the thing ripped open and, and also, to be honest, if you want the bread to to have really good texture, if you want the crumb to be nice, you want to make sure to relieve that stress so that so that all the bubbles can continue to expand. Because if in part of your loaf they can't expand like they want because they're constricted, then you're going to have dense bread there, and you don't want you don't want dense bread. So you want to relieve that stress. So that's basically the deal. And, and learning to do that slashing, and learning how to to make your dough. So that the outer layer, when you're ready to put it in the oven, is a little bit drier than the inside so that it takes those slash marks in a way that you can control better is part of the skill of learning how to make really good bread. So those bread slashes, side note, are called scoring. And Seamus has some guidelines for how many to do. Essentially, make your decorative gashes add up to the length of the loaf total to give some expanding room as it cooks. And he makes his about a quarter inch to a half an inch deep and with a razor blade. But likely a knife or a very long toenail will probably do. I don't know your situation. Ezra wants to know, can you knead bread dough too much? Or is it, is it better to overknead or underknead? It is, that's an interesting question. So, I, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine overneeding uh, bread. Um, usually when people get really tense about kneading bread, they're really, what they're really doing is, is, is getting something else wrong. Um, what you're doing when you're kneading is you're aligning um, all of these like crazy long chains of molecules, protein molecules inside the bread so that they form better gas pockets. And so you're making it so that when the microbes, uh, you know, fart out their gas, it stays around in the bread as opposed to just like venting off and then your bread doesn't rise. So you can actually have a ton of, of microbes like happily living and farting in a, in a loaf. And if, if you don't have enough gluten or if you don't have something in there that can make balloons, then mm-hmm. all that CO2 is just going to float away yeah. and you're going to have a hockey puck. That's tough. Uh, and so, you know, what you're doing in your kneading is you're, you're trying to set that gluten up and distribute it so that uh, it naturally forms bubbles. Listen up, because this is the analogy that we all need. It's no different than if you remember when you're learning how to blow bubbles with gum, there's mm-hmm. a like super specific way that you need to, <laughs> to learn how to like form it so that it's in the right kind of a sheet and it's the right thickness. And then when you blow on it, it makes yeah. a bubble. Kneading is essentially exactly like chewing that bubble gum. And there's not, you don't have to knead in sort of conventional sense or in a bread machine, you know. A very effective technique, especially with the more, you know, cranky grains that have less gluten, so it's really, it's harder to get those bubbles to form, Mm -hmm. um, is a technique of stretching. Some people call it no-knead bread. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, you have to knead the no-knead bread. What you're just doing is you're stretching it, and that mechanical motion 
of these long molecules against each other aligns them. And that turns out to be what it takes to make it so that the bubble can form successfully. Now, there's way more than you ever wanted to know about that. No, No, that's that's amazing. amazing. Like, oh, that's why you do it. Like the science of cooking makes makes it so much easier to adhere to those practices instead of lazily skipping steps. You know? Yeah, that's like, right. It, human, I don't want to know thing, human beings hate like being told to do something and not yeah, why. Yeah. Like, no, yeah, you yeah. just do this. Yeah, but why, man? But why? I need a reason. Um, Alex Quinton wants to know why their starter, why their sourdough starter stops growing from day four. Like day three, it's beautiful, doubles in size, perfect, and then day four stops growing and. They say, I feel like I keep doing it wrong, so I dump it in the bin. No, don't dump it in the bin. No, so so it's a sourdough starter is 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 like having billions of pets, and <laughs> some days they you know poo in the living room, and that's just how it is. And don't don't you don't you don't throw away your dog because you know he does that, and don't throw away your starter. Um, okay. You know it, it goes up and down, and I and I think that you know part of part of the issue here is the you know Instagram poisoning um, oh. of of people who show these like you know banging starters in these jars um and again like you know anybody who does wild starters and feeds them you know grains knows that 90 percent of those pictures are garbage and lies um so don't beat yourself up you know just keep feeding it and uh, a few important things about uh about starter cultures um, first of all, as as the the microbes eat the food, um, and they they excrete excrete whatever they can excrete, they poo. Um, mm-hmm. It's CO two, uh, lactic acid, um, alcohol, you know, whatever it is. It's a big mix of things based on whatever is in your sample. Um, just like you wouldn't want to, you know, sleep in your bed if you pooed in your bed. They they don't want to <laughs> do that. It's not good for them. Uh, and so when you pour half off, really pour half off. Like be you have to be really brutal. And you have to replace it with fresh flour and fresh water because the pH changes. You know, the CO2 changes the pH and makes it more acidic in there. And that's bad for them. It'll cause them to grow more slowly. So you have to be really careful and replace that quite a bit. And, you know, if it's, you know, slowing down, you can feed it two or three times a day. It's no big deal. And sometimes you won't even see a difference. But you have to understand the microbes are in there. And unless you've killed them with heat, or your roommate is a total dick and has like poured bleach in there or something. Um, it's not dead. Um, and, and believe me, you know, if we can amplify, a, you know, a few yeast molecules from a 5,000 year old pot into bread, you know, you can't, there's no way that you've killed all but like two molecules or yeast cells in, 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 in your starter. So don't, don't give up on your starter. Come on, man. Have some sympathy. Don't, don't be a monster. Oh, come on, man. Uh, and you met, you know, you mentioned the old bread and Obliot, Obelot, um, asked, what did the ancients put on their bread? Like, did butter exist? What kind of oils? Did they smear it with tahini, yogurt? Like, wh- how was it eaten? And did you adhere to that when you first made your ancient loaf? Oh, right. So, wow. Um, a few things. Uh, first of all, um, fats. So I have, um, I'm the the proud owner of a of a uh, vast library of different um, ancient animal fats. I've tried baking and seasoning pots and using them for all sorts of different things, from I know beef tallow to goose fat to uh, lamb fat, um, flax oil, all sorts of different plant oils, uh, and they all make good bread. 
Um, in fact, I, I have to be honest with you, the pork fat bread is ridiculously awesome. Really? Um, oh, yeah. Um, and, and this was all because, you know, we were trying to figure out what fats they might have been around in the Old Kingdom because, you know, there wasn't like a recipe. People would have used the fats at hand. And um, there were a lot of waterfowl used for food in the, uh, in the Old Kingdom and also, surprisingly, a lot of beef. And so, you know, we tried all those things out and they all worked and they're, they're quite good. The ancient Egyptians also put various spices into their bread. The bread that I make, I put roasted coriander in because we find that in all the mass spectroscopy studies of Old Kingdom um, and Giza bread. Uh, it was a very common thing for them to add. And when that bread comes out of the oven, and remember that in these cultures, people ate bread as a main food stuff. It wasn't like what they had for breakfast, and they weren't making like avocado toast with it. It was their main food stuff. And these were peasants. So they'd eat it right away. So the loaf didn't last. There wasn't like day old bread, right? Yeah. And when you get this loaf out of the hole in the ground and you take the thing off and you let it cool for a bit, it does not need any topping. It, it just it doesn't need it. Um, and so it's a satisfying meal in itself. Now, that said, the ancient Egyptians were notorious for uh, eating onions. In fact, the, the three things we always see in funerary offerings are bread, beer, and onions, um, which <laughs> always causes me to think that, like, I don't want to be in a small room with an ancient Egyptian. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I'm guessing that you would have had this bread with coriander in it and some onions fried in, in duck fat. Um, oh and, my god! Um, and and that's that that's and I've done that, and that's really exceptionally good food. Oh, Seamus has also stepped up his gastroegyptology game by experimenting cooking the ancient starter dough in these conical vessels in a pit of hot coals to more authentically replicate ancient loaves. And I feel like this is not the work of an amateur. This is a professional gastroegyptologist. But coming up, he puts it all in perspective. So his precision comes from play and from passion. So this should be fun, after all. You should like this. What about uh, the last couple questions I always ask? Um, any flimflam that you want to debunk? Any myths about uh, bread startering, bread bread starters, sourdough starters that you wish people knew? <sighs> wow. Um... So many, but the, the well, the main the main thing is just that um, you know this is a very ancient thing, and people who knew nothing about biology or the internet uh, could do this better than we ever will. So, the key thing about sourdough is to just let the fuck go, stop <laughs> overthinking it, and just work on it. You know, this is a it's a skill, not a recipe. That's a good. You need bumper stickers. You need to sell merch. I know people want to buy your starter too, your ancient starter, and it's like, uh, uh-uh, uh. Well, yeah. The the there are two reasons for that. The first one is that we're in the middle of the research, and the second one is, like I said, it doesn't belong to me. Yeah, yeah. I think that's beautiful. Um, what what is something that annoys you the most about the process of bread making? What's what's the most irksome? What's the crappiest or the most tedious or vexing element? Of baking bread or breaking or baking old bread. Uh, you mean aside from just being me? Um, all right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so the, the there are two obvious stands out the standouts. First one is that uh, you know I mill all my own flour, so I have like these bags of grain that show mm-hmm. up in my house, and <laughs> milling flour is hard. <laughs> it's hard work, uh, and it's loud, and it makes mm-hmm. a mess. And I have mm-hmm. to do it a lot. 
Second thing is that I'm incredibly careful to maintain the sterility, the non-contamination of these samples. And so, uh, you know, feeding my starter takes me half an hour Mm -hmm. uh, and I do it every day. And that's just a lot of time and effort. That is a mm-hmm. pain in the ass. And it's part of the reason, and I apologize to everybody who's, that I'm, I'm so cranky. And people say, well, how do you know? I heard that sourdough starters get contaminated by the flour that you feed them and that they change based on it. And I'm like, oh, I just have no patience after spending <laughs> half an hour with a fucking autoclave and UV lights and sterile gloves every day. Like, oh, you shut the fuck up. <laughs> Read the thread. <laughs> uh, maybe you're just hangry. Maybe could be. That could be it. I, I need some. I need some. Some. Some onions in goose fat. Oh, yeah. Uh, and what about your favorite thing? Your favorite thing about baking. Your favorite thing about bread. The mo- the thing that gives you the butterflies the most. Yeah, you know, there was a moment where I was uh, after I had finished milling flour one day, um, and I have these big sort of outsized jars, mason jars that I put the milled flour in, and I label them with a date. And uh, you know, after I sterilize flour, I label it sterilized with the date on it because um, I've got good lab technique. Because I'm a particle physicist, and I, <laughs> I was I was trained when like there were machines that could trivially kill you if you weren't careful. <laughs> um, and uh, I found myself, I'm going to actually get verklempt at this, but one day, um, I don't know, like six weeks ago, I finished milling and I was writing Emmer on the jar. And I looked over and I realized that I had written it in hieroglyphs (gasps) and I didn't even know. Oh my God. And I felt like, I felt like I was there. I felt like I was, I felt like I was a, a worthy human being i i was i was communing with my elders my ancestors it was really special wow oh shoot i was tearing up too you can i'm gonna use my all my tears to make a sourdough starter now. there you go that's right <laughs> raised, raised on the tears of podcast hosts no it's really that's really special that's really amazing um i want to look up how how that's actually written in hieroglyphs. That's really, really interesting. The word is bedet. I looked up the hieroglyph for emmer wheat, and it looks like a foot, a hand, a loaf, and a little shaft of wheat. And it's just amazing to think of how many people over how many years have seen and read that. You, you got all this garbage about the pyramids being built by aliens and mysterious technologies and all of this. And, and you know, there's a, there's a, there's a quarry um, where stone was taken for the for the pyramids, and in one corner of it, you can you can go, and I don't know if you can see this or not, but I've seen pictures of it. Um, there's a little drawing that one of the stonemasons made of his friend, and 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 it's this picture of a guy holding holding a, a, a chisel with a hammer, <gasps> and and he's got kind of a big nose, and over it is written "big nose." <laughs> and, and and isn't it isn't it so much more impressive? That those incredible structures were built by by Big Nose and his friends th- mm-hmm. than it is than it is by aliens. Like, yeah, isn't it just isn't that enough? Yeah, is, isn't it enough that that they were able to do that? Why why do we need aliens? I think what you're doing of getting people interested in the history and the culture of it and the people, um, and slowing down and and trying to do it themselves. I think that's really cool. I mean, in a time like this, that sucks. I mean, it's it's great that you're doing this. There's a lot of people that will have so much more appreciation. So who knew 
that a particle physicist and a guy who designed the Xbox would be the one in a crisis to help us slow down and relax and stay inside and get back to basics. The simulation, man, it throws us some curveballs, doesn't it? Do you want to know like a weird, <laughs> a, a tr- truly weird, like, uh, like conspiracy theory kind of thing? Um, yeah. that's, that's right in front of our faces, but that's so fucking weird at the same time that it's too weird to even think about. No, what is it? If you go look at the Xbox logo. Okay. It's a loaf of bread. No. no. no just go, I'm telling you, go look at it. It's a fucking sourdough loaf. Who designed that? Was that you? So the original logo for the, for our, for the first one was different from that. This is what they came up with after I left. <gasps> ah! It's a bull. It's a fucking bull. It's crazy. Isn't that insane? Oh, so that, God. so that's a little creepy. That's a, that's a little mysterious. And you, you know, that's a little like Berenstain Bears Mandela effect. Just a little bit. Yeah. That's a little bit X Files right there. So ask smart people stupid questions. Ask sweet people sourdough questions because they have knowledge to spare and bread is tasty. We're all in this together to stay in and slow down and maybe reframe and tell the people we love that we love them, that we loaf them. You can follow Seamus Blackley on Twitter. Uh, There's a link in the show notes. And also follow Egyptologist Dr. Serena Love and Richard Bowman, the microbiologist. They're also linked. Kieran Donacci came up with a word, gastroegyptology. Thank you for that. We are at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Allie Ward with one L on both. And a ton of links, including to Seamus's threads, are up at AllieWard.com slash Ologies slash gastroegyptology. And bleeped episodes and transcripts are up at AllieWard.com slash Apologies-extras, link in the show notes. Thank you to professional transcriptionist Emily White and her army of volunteers in the Ologies Transcribers Facebook group. I see you. I love you all. Thank you for what you do. Ologies merch is available at ologiesmerch.com. Thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch, sisters who host the comedy podcast You Are That for managing that. Thank you, Aaron Talbert, for wrangling the Ologies podcast Facebook group. Thank you to each and every patron for submitting questions and being just the anchor of the show. Thank you to Travis and Miles. Congrats on your new sourdough starter. I want to hear what it's named. Happy birthday to my niece, Olivia, and my good pal, Colleen Flanagan. Assistant editing was done by the wonderful Jarrett Sleeper, who does quarantine calisthenics every day at noon Pacific time, sometimes in character in a red long john onesie and a floppy hat, calling himself an old-timey gold prospector by the name of Antoine Calvin de Bouvier, who's avenging his nemesis, Silver Tongue Jack, for stealing his biscuits and bacon. Workouts in those themes. Those are up on his Instagram, Jarrett-Sleeper. Get into it. And of course, thank you to lead editor and host of the kitty-themed Percast and the dino-themed See Jurassic Right, Stephen Rye Morris. We couldn't do it without you. I'm sorry. Theme song was written by Nick Thorburn of the band Islands. And if you listen to the end, you know I tell you a secret. And this week, um, I was very excited to interview Seamus, and I told my boyfriend, Jarrett, I was like, I'm talking to this sourdough expert. He also invented the Nintendo PS4. And he thought I was joking, and I wasn't. And he paused, and Jarrett got on his Discord chat with his gamer dude friends and told them what I had said. And then I heard them all laugh on speakerphone, and they continued to roast me, just ruthlessly. And I deserve it. So apparently, Xbox is not a Nintendo or a PS4. I was just throwing around words. I don't know the difference. Now I do. But yes, look it up. The Xbox logo very much looks like a sourdough. Goosebumps. All right, I better go. Stay safe. You're doing great out there. Okay.
Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find?